Welcome to this week's Foundation Stage Forum podcast. This week, we're joined by Joanna Grace, who is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the Sensory Projects. Joanna's son became the UK's youngest published author in 2020 with his book, My Mummy is Artistic. Joanna's eighth book, The Subtle Spectrum, comes out in June, and both books are published by Routledge. So welcome to the podcast, Joanna. Could you tell us a bit about the Century Projects and why it was established, please? The Century Projects run on the principle that with the right knowledge and a little bit of creativity, inexpensive items can become effective sensory tools for inclusion. Um, and why it was established? For, for all sorts of good, worthy reasons, but predominantly because I like playing with cardboard boxes and sellotape. Fair enough. Joanna, you, you wrote um, a lovely article for us, which will be published soon, um, about um, using a sensory jar and, um, sorry, a settle jar. And it really struck me that was such a, a great example of just something where, in fact, you included in the article how you can make it yourself, you know, just using things you've got at home or at your setting or whatever, which I thought was fantastic, just going back to that thing of liking to use cardboard boxes and sellotape. Um, and I, I also know from your website that you talk about um, uh, creativity being something that's accessible to everybody if we have the right knowledge and apply the right knowledge. And that really struck me as well as something that was so important to remember in our practice as early years practitioners. Yeah, I think the, the Settle Jar article is a really nice example, actually, of what I mean when I say knowledge and creativity can turn little things into effective resources. Because if you think about the sensory resources you might have in a setting, or I'm thinking back to pre-lockdown days when I used to get to go to big conferences and you see a stand and it's full of sensory toys and there's all these wonderful things there. And I just sort of wonder what happens if you fill up a basket with them and take them back to your setting. Do you really achieve anything with them? And then if you look at those individual things, like the settle jar in that article, there are things that you can do with these little resources and they can be shop bought resources. That's fine. I, you know, all credit to you if you've got the money to buy all of the lovely shiny sparkly things I would like to but you can also make lovely shiny sparkly things if you've got the knowledge as to how to use that you can get so much more out of a resource like that and and I suppose the flip is that you can have all the money in the world I, I recently published a book that looked at um, the use of multi-sensory rooms in the UK and that's kind of a brilliant example of how you can have loads and loads of money and if you haven't got the right knowledge with it, it's completely ineffective. I've seen the most spectacular 1.2 million pound sensory room that was having no effect whatsoever. Not because there's anything wrong with the room and not because there was anything wrong with the people operating the room. Just they hadn't had the relevant training and you can't you like you don't know stuff that you haven't been taught yet if you know how to use these resources then you can have a really big impact with them and if you don't not so much yeah absolutely and our next question was um what are the key benefits of using sensory experiences to support the telling of a story 
Oh, so I, my first sensory project was the Sensory Stories project. Originally, it was just meant to be one project, and it was a massive dream of mine to set that project up. And my big, big dream was to have five Sensory Stories published. And now I think there's over 30 published, and there's some books and some children's stories, and it's really run away with itself. It's bigger than I ever imagined. And this, the Sensory Story project led into other projects so it's run away in lots of different directions it's run away in terms of how many stories and it's run away in terms of projects but the sensory stories are concise narratives that partner text with sensory experience so you have that phrase a picture speaks a thousand words well so does a smell and so does a touch and so in a sensory narrative it's a bit more than just um book bags you know some settings have lovely bags of curious resources or little pictures of characters from the story and as you're telling the story you pull things out of the bag and that captures curiosity and interest and it's a lovely way of engaging children with the story it's kind of like a level up from that because a little picture is interesting to look at if your brain understands that it's a picture of a character in a story but if your brain doesn't understand that and actually that's quite a big ask for a lot of little people not just little people with additional learning needs then it's not particularly interesting to look at there's lots of interesting things to look at in your setting whereas if i can give you a visual experience which sounds really fancy but i just mean something that draws the attention of your vision just your vision whether your brain is in interested in it or not or something that fills the whole of your vision like looking through a piece of colored cellophane changes everything you see if I can give you a good visual experience with your story then I engage much more of your brain and then if I can also give you a really interesting smell experience and a really interesting touch experience then you've got a really really rich experience of narrative that is also very inclusive because you can include people in a sensory story that can't access stories told through traditional means so can't access stories through language can't access stories through pictures so they're they're a fantastic resource i i ran the sensory projects because i love them so much i particularly like how you can be really creative as well and personalize sensory stories to to young children so that the experiences are meaningful and i think it sometimes takes um you really need to be comfortable that you can be flexible in what you're doing and, and adapt and I think until you have spent more time uh, working with children who uh, are going to really benefit from these stories it, it can feel quite daunting to perhaps write your own story or or, or create something that's going to be a meaningful um, learning experience for a child but it can be amazing when you can really tailor and be flexible with with the content. Yeah, a lot of times I find people will buy a sensory story from me or buy a couple and then after they've had experience using those, they feel more confident to create their own because I can write, you know, stories about interesting or things I think are interesting and I can resource them with things that I think, you know, and I'll add a bit to that I think in that I know my stuff on this one that I think are interesting sensory experiences. And I like to write on ambitious topics. So I've got a story on the sensory projects that I wrote in conjunction with physicists at the Max Planck about how stars are born in stellar nurseries. So it's, it's a factual text and you have all of those experiences in there, but they're not about that particular child. And actually 
a pretty, you know, mundane story that isn't actually that interesting, that somebody else wouldn't be interested in. It's going to be way more interesting to that child if it's about them. And for all that I know my stuff and I know my sensory experiences and I have experience, I can't write that story because I don't know that child. So it's really lovely to personalize them. And then there's lots and lots of different ways you can use them beyond just sharing a story. So I run a training course called Ambitious and Inclusive Sensory Story Sharing. And the ambitious and the inclusive parts of that are, are there for a reason. You know, the inclusive is to talk about all these different ways we can use to, for sensory stories to further inclusion. So to give you an example, um, I was part of a project that used sensory stories to support people um, going to the circus. So if you're going to the circus, that's a one-off experience. If you're somebody who struggles with change or you know, maybe just if you're somebody who's likely to get overwhelmed by a situation, suddenly being in the big top with the smell of the popcorn and the sounds and all of those things is a lot to cope with. And that coping can take away from your enjoyment of being at the circus. But if I can tell you beforehand, you're going to go to the circus, it's going to smell like this, it's going to feel like this, this is what's going to happen. Then when you enter that situation, you don't have to cope so much and you can just enjoy it. And that's creating sensory accessibility. We think about accessibility in terms of ramps and disabled toilets and things like that, changing places, toilets. But there's more ways we need to think about being inclusive. So there, there's the ambition and the inclusiveness. And, and there's lots and lots of examples that I could give you for different ways that sensory stories can be used to promote inclusion. Brilliant. We have... Um touched on this already and we sort of talked about the settle jar example but I know that people are always really interested in hearing about inexpensive ways to create powerful resources I wondered if you could uh, maybe share with us either a bit more information on the settle jar or a different example of an inexpensive but very effective resource that you've used in the past yeah well I guess people can look up the settle jar article so that's an easy one for people to find what about um gack and slime that was such a big craze um last a, a few years ago i was the only person i knew who knew how to make slime and i used to teach people on training days and everybody would be like oh wow this is amazing and now if i tried to do that everybody would be like oh yeah my child did this for you know months over the summer <laughs> holidays we've got so much contact lens solution there are lots of different ways you can make a sort of gacky slime and i can't any longer dazzle you by knowing how to do it you can find it in the internet but that sort of gungy slime is sold in places genuinely sold or promoted as a sensory resource this is sensory and that word sensory just gets used like well yeah, of course, like everything is sensory. I can see these things around me. I can touch, these are sensory. So why does that get that label? You know, I want two words. I want like a small letter sensory and a capital letter sensory. So GAC is, it's a sensory resource. You should buy it because it's a sensory resource. That's it. That's all the information you're given. It's like, it's good for children who are autistic. Oh, is it? Why? <laughs> There's none of that information. What do we do? Do we just give it to the autistic child and and that somehow what 
fixes autism what's going on there it's really weird it's just the same as if you were sold a maths resource you know imagine all the maths resources that you can have and somebody said here you go here's a maths resource give it to the child they'll learn maths no they won't like yes it will be useful to them and they might pick up a bit of maths from playing with it but it's about how you use it so GAC lovely stuff really interesting to touch and to fiddle with and to explore and to feel on your fingers and there are a couple of things that might be going on when GAC is used effectively with somebody for starters just a really easy one you might just have somebody who's got fidgety fingers you know, like if you've ever sat in a meeting with a load of other people, you can spot that person. They're like playing with their hair or fiddling with a string on their jumper or fiddling with their pen. I, I used to have a teacher that I worked alongside and she was forever, you know, flicking things in staff meetings. And when she was fiddling, she was listening. And I went with her once to a big, um, I can't remember what it was, but it, was a, it wasn't with people we knew. It was with people in suits and we were the two teachers from rural Cornwall. We were trying our best not to look like hippies. And so we were there and we all sat down and I had my notebook and my pen and my clipboard and I'd got a suit on. So I was blending in just fine. And I saw her sit down. She'd got a big like duffel bag with her not a good way to blend in she rooted through it because she hadn't remembered to bring a pen she got out a whiteboard marker and a scrap of paper and then she tried to sit looking formal and I was watching her because I knew that she normally fiddled with stuff and I could see it was taking all of her concentration to her concentration was I must not fiddle with my pen I must that's all that was going through her head I must not fiddle you see them like people sit on their hands like I will behave I will behave because we've all been conditioned to think that sitting still and looking that way is polite behavior and I don't imagine she took in anything that was said there if you could give her a piece of gack and say here you go you're allowed to fiddle with this whilst I talk to you brilliant she no longer needs to concentrate on keeping her hands still and she's paying attention. So that's one way you might use it. But there's another one that it gets promoted for, which is that when children are exploring that texture and especially on some of the beautifully colored ones, when they're looking and going, wow, look at these colors and these changing shapes, what they're doing is they're paying attention to a sensory present. They are paying attention to the here and now, to this, to this look, to this touch, to this smell, to the, it's mindfulness practice. And so it gets sold as it's calming because mindfulness practice is calming. To be attentive to the sensory present is like a little bit of mindfulness. And so if you're handing it to a child because you want them to calm, you hand them the GAC and then you treat them as if they are somebody engaged in a mindfulness practice. I, I, we have, we, my husband and I have a housemate that we're living with through lockdown at the moment and she does yoga and mindfulness. And if we knew that she was in her room doing mindfulness practice, we're not going to knock on the door. We're not going to play our music loud. We're going to try and keep the bit. We're going to protect that space and respect it. So if I'm giving you the gag so that you can be mindful and calm down, possibly because you've just done something that wasn't particularly mindful and calm, then I don't simultaneously stand over you going, oh, and you shouldn't have kicked so-and-so because that's not going to have the effect, is it? I let you get to calm. I protect your space to become calm. And when you are calm and your brain can receive that information and learn, then we have a chat about why you kicked so-and-so. But again, it's how you use it. 
you can just you could put all the gack around in your setting that you like it will not create calm and it will not help children concentrate but if you understand why you're using it and what's going on behind then for gack and for lots of other sensory resources that can be the difference between having them be very effective or having them be decorative effective or decorative it's like a tagline it is isn't it yeah um i'm gonna go we're kind of talking there about um a kind of a single resource that's what we've really been talking about so far so i'm going to kind of really broaden it now and ask a question about um the schools that can spend we've kind of touched on it the schools that can spend many thousands of pounds on really specialist sensory rooms and they don't necessarily always prove to be effective and I, we just wondered, um, what do you see as an ideal sensory space? Uh, a, it's a get out of jail answer card in that it's one that's personalised to the needs of your learners. Um, the, the reason you're asking me the question is because I did a big piece of research in, I forget what year I'm in now, 2019, I think, maybe 2018, I can't remember, that looked at the effectiveness of multi-sensory rooms in the UK. And so I um, spoke to lots and lots of people who use lots of different multi-sensory rooms from, you know, just a painted broom cupboard with a UV light in all the way up to the most amazing high spec 4D immersive sensory rooms. And we explored what made them effective and what barriers years to good practice we found ask people about equipment I, w I was expecting to find some front runners you know for people to say you can't have a sensory room without a bubble tube or um you know fiber optics are a must-have but actually surprisingly few people mention specific bits of equipment the equipment is valuable it's definitely valuable mm -hmm. but the logistics around using it are far more determinative of how effective your practice in a sensory room is mm. so some nice bits of kit brilliant if you've got a budget bigger bits of kit will last you longer you know will be more durable can be knocked over more often if you haven't got a budget then you can do a lot with a torch and a blanket thrown over a table and actually in terms of effectiveness both the torch and the blanket over the table and the incredibly high spec 1.2 million pound room can be as effective or as ineffective as each other. It, depend, it depends on what you do with it. I think from my experience, I visit nurseries and schools and, and try and provide some helpful advice for, um, with their learners. And sometimes I think it's really useful to ask the question, why, why are you doing something in particular in the sensory room why have you chosen to turn these things on or why have you decided to to wave this spinny fan in front of the child um, and sometimes the response unfortunately is because the teachers told me to and and then do you know what what the teacher was hoping to achieve from this activity and i think if we can always ask ourselves the question why before we um we we enter that type of space and we consider what the, the purpose is, um, especially in terms of learning for the child, then hopefully it'll help guide us a little bit in the choices that we make. And I suppose that brings me on to my next question about reflective practice. And when it comes to sensory um, experience that we offer our, our students, how important do you think reflective practice is? At 
absolutely massive. Your, your example of the multi-sensory rooms, there's no quicker way of killing the potential in a multi-sensory room than to turn it all on. But you can understand why people turn it on. They've been told that this equipment does something. You know, it's sold in catalogues as equipment that, you know, is good for children with X condition, you know, is, does, is calming or whatever. And it can't work if you don't switch it on can it what's the point in having stuff you don't switch on so it makes perfect sense that people go in and switch it all on but if you do go in and switch it all on you you might as well not have the space at all and i think where your information comes from is really key in getting um the most out of any sensory resource big or small multi-sensory room or or fidget toy and quite often our main source of information is advertising and the people who are selling the products can tell you about what their product does. You know, this is a thing that makes a lot of lights or, you know, plays a tune when you press the button. But unless there is the information with that about how to use it, not how to operate it, because this is one of the things I found when I did the research about sensory rooms. I asked, I forget now, lots of people, can't remember how many, um, what training they'd had. And everybody I spoke to had been trained in how to operate the room. They'd all had training on how to switch it on and off. And only one person in the whole of my study had had training in how to use it. And you think about what that would mean in a, in a sort of parallel profession. If, if your local council offices installed a brand new set of computers, a piece of high tech, fancy equipment, and taught everybody how to switch it on and off, but didn't teach them how to use it, what would your conclusions from that be? Why have they put that equipment there? Do they believe that the equipment works all by itself and you're irrelevant? Or is the equipment just for show, to look good? And that was another scary finding. When I asked people why they'd had their sensory room installed, the most common answer was because they wanted to impress somebody else. So it, it literally, it was show we wanted a better one than the school down the road is like a classic answer which is nice and you're aspiring for your students but but you know that's the but is where the reflective practice comes in isn't it it's really important to understand your whys and to understand what's going on behind things and it's an easy thing to say as somebody who doesn't you know, I'm an independent. I don't have a job that I go to. I just have a life that I live and it's all this sort of stuff. When I was a teacher, if somebody had said to me, oh, you should, you know, you should find out about why these things work. You, my question would have been when, you know, where would, because I worked until I fell asleep at night and from when I woke up in the morning, where's the spare time that I'm doing this research? where am I getting it unless it's provided to me as training as a part of my job role with the best will in the world I might want to know this stuff but I haven't got the time and I, I remember really clearly um, meeting a lady on a training day she did my job in another setting and I said to her I think I told her I was getting married and she said oh she said you can't have a a personal life and do the job that we do we were working in special schools and she just said it so matter-of-factly to me that you think oh my goodness no it is meant to be my hot so there is no time for this stuff that's that's where people like me come in I see my job as being the 
go between you know those old yogurt pot telephones <laughs> it's improvised resources i'm the yogurt pot telephone i take the information from the research world and trundle it down the string to the practitioner world and then i take the information back from the practitioner world and try and trundle it back up the string to the research world because it's no good to people in settings if a research team discover that if you take a child into a quiet room with a fancy piece of equipment and three members of staff that you can achieve you know, <laughs> like you can read that and go well that's nice for you isn't it because i work knee deep in children and there's no quiet what how could I how could I ever use what you found out there so it's important that the conversation goes both ways and, and I'm just the go-between um that's such a good way of putting it the yoga pot telephone I love that I'm gonna keep that image in my mind that's the that's good. Me, I'm a professional yoga pot telephone <laughs> it's a great job description isn't it um I wanted to ask you a question about different kinds of listening, Joanna. So I know on your website, you have a, a quote that really struck me, which, and I'm gonna read it out. It's a person's ability to communicate is not dependent on their mastery of certain skills, but on our ability to listen. And yeah. so the question really was, can you unfold for us the different ways we can listen and how we can adapt our listening to the individual we're with? Most of my work focuses on people with profound multiple learning disabilities and so when I wrote that quote it was with them in mind mm -hmm. and you have this idea around them that there is a person who cannot communicate here is a person who cannot communicate we can't ask for their consent because they cannot communicate and it's a really short piece of thinking I, I like I like to think long I like to keep questioning keep asking because all it means is that they can't use a standardized form of communication that we use. I, I don't think there is any such thing as a non-communicating person. And you meet their loved ones and they won't see them as a non-communicating person. What those people are is exceptionally skilled communicators who've been given a limited set of resources with which to communicate. And when I meet some of the consultants that I work with, um, the consultants all have profound and multiple learning disabilities. I think, my goodness, if I had been given the, the limitations to communication that you have, would I be able to say as much as you? Because people, all people are communicative. And yes, they might not be pointing at a yes or no symbol or nodding their head or shaking their head, but there are many, many ways that we can listen to communication. And I, people know this because you, you experience it um, like if you have pets there's a communication that goes on between a person and their pet and it's not that the pet isn't pointing to yes and no to say whether it's hungry it, there's there's communication in body language there's communication in there's even communication in breath you know and i've been reading um research around neuroception and interception and so some of the subconscious sensory systems because i like to go adventuring in a sensory landscape like i've always gone to seven senses at the sensory projects and now it's getting to be a bit of a slippery slope it's like gateway drugs once you've once you've gone past the conscious five senses it's very easy to slip into sort of eight or nine senses and some of these more um less well-known ones are really interesting for insight with regards to that there was an amazing sorry I'm, I'm talking things on top of things but there was an amazing piece of research that somebody did into interception where they were questioning 
what the interceptive abilities of hostage negotiators might be like. So these people who are specialist hostage negotiators who go into super tense situations and say, you know, please give us back the hostage. They were saying maybe their interception is really bad. And so they don't get stressed by the stress to the stress of the situation. And that helps them to stay calm. Or maybe it's really good and they use it to enable them to have those conversations. And then they tested it and it was it was the second one the people who were the hostage negotiators had interception that was like like in vision it would be the most spectacular 2020 vision they had the interceptive equivalent of that and your interception is your ability to feel your feelings so it's another one of those situations where i need two words because you have feelings if i ask you how do you feel you tell me i feel happy i feel sad but the way that you do that is by physically feeling your emotional state. And that is how fast your heart is beating. You know, if, if your stomach was churning, you might say, I feel nervous. Um, if you were sweaty, you, I don't know, you register all of these little feelings and then you report an emotion. So one is the process of seeing your emotion and the other is the emotion itself. So if you have really good interception, you see your own sort of internal landscape in high definition and the internal landscapes of people around us have an effect on our own so if i can know what my base level is if i can know okay this is me this is how i feel and then i just sit next to you and you're feeling a different way part of how you're feeling will sort of impress itself on my internal feeling so I can listen to your emotional landscape through my own interception, as it were. And it's just fascinating. But you can listen to people with all of your senses. That's what I would be doing in my work. You're not just looking for what, you're not just listening out for what somebody says. You're looking at how they're presenting themselves. You're responding to them across the senses. And yeah, in terms of that conversation between somebody with a profound disability and somebody who is you know, classed as not having a disability. If you've got a gap where one person is struggling to communicate with the other, I think the onus should be on the supposedly more capable person to bridge that gap. Whereas quite often the onus is placed on the supposedly less capable person. And we're saying you should learn this communication skill that, that we use. I wanted to ask you, Joanna, about, um, about children with profound and multiple learning disabilities and over the last year a lot of focus has been on home learning I wondered what your thoughts were on what high quality home learning might look like for those children well my um I have the privilege of looking through the window of Facebook into the lives of lots of children with profound and multiple learning disabilities and home learning the lockdown experience has been terrifying for their families um, the what you have seen in the sort of government's response to that demographic has been just a really big underlining of how they are and how neglected and how much an afterthought and all sorts of horrible things. So their parents, their siblings have been very stressed and very frightened. Um, and I've seen awful, awful experiences of when people have actually got ill um but the home learning 
has been superb because those children have been supported by people who know them exceptionally well, who already listen to them with all of their senses um, and who are able to respond to their needs and their interests. And actually, this isn't research. This is just my Facebook research. A lot of the children that I know who have quite complex needs, their communication skills have rocketed in lockdown because they've been in a responsive communication environment. Um, so personalized, ideal home learning is personalized to your needs and it's your teacher is somebody who knows you really, really well. That's an excellent way to sum it up, thank you. It is, isn't it? Um, we're, we're reaching our final question, Joanna, um, which is what are your future hopes for the sensory projects and how can people get involved and find out more? Uh, I sort of hope that there's not any more of them because the, it was originally the sensory story project that became an art project that became a sensory being project that became the, there's this spectacular sensory selection salon project which if you get the chance watch the little video that goes with that one it's only like two minutes long and it's just a joy um so I, I only meant to do the one and I am only one person and just doing one of them is like a full-time job and there's six. Um, but I'm trying really hard not to think of another one. Um, but at the moment, um, I'm putting the training that I used to run in person into an online format. And I, I have to confess, I was quite, um, when lockdown first happened and people that I was booked to go and speak to in person said, oh, you know, will you do it online? I was like, no. It's not the same online. It's not the same. I know that I'm, you know, I'm delivering a particular day. Use in your setting will be the same as the slides that I use in somebody else's setting. But I always eavesdrop in people. You know, I, I eavesdrop on the conversations in the toilet. I ask people questions. You get a much more personalised training day than you would realise. It is bespoke to your needs, even if you haven't told me what they are. You know, the the um the cleaner will have told me or some you know I'll have found out and also for me it's a two-way conversation I I listen in on those conversations and that's where I learn because I'm I'm talking to you about being the bridge between research and practice but I'm sitting here just with what what some sort of weird made-up job I'm not in practice anymore I don't day to day I'm not in a classroom environment I'd, so I mustn't lose touch with that and I need to hear all those stories to keep it fresh and spend time like on the ground as it were and so I was like no I'm not going online it's not the same I'm not going to pretend it's the same I was watching other people sort of claim that they were doing the same day and just it's you can't like I could stand up in front of a room full of people and chat to them for three hours and it would be okay we'd be able to listen it would be funny you know bum might go numb but that's it if I stand up in a room on my own and try and chat to you through zoom for three hours it's not the same you like you'll have you'll have switched off your camera and gone and made a cup of tea and stroked the cat it's not the same and so I spent a good start of lockdown going, it's not the same, it's not the same, I'm not doing it, I won't do it, I'm just going to wait it out, I'll wait it out. And then I thought, okay, it's time to stop being grumpy. If I'm going to move online, what would it look, rather than try and make it the same, what could I do that would use the medium and make it better? And I think, I mean, I'm still learning, but I think I've got it. So I'm doing my training days, but I'm doing them in little chunks little 10 minute chunks as a course that people can study and so the idea is you watch a little 10 minute chunk and then there's some activities to do with it 
And the lovely thing about that, which I expect people will be able to appreciate after they've listened to this, is you can pause me. Whereas in real life, it's very difficult to pause me. <laughs> and then I've worked in a way of, I've put a very gentle assessment procedure in place where I invite people to share their reflections on just three of those little films from a course. And I, um, I grade them. I have a marking ladder because I'm a teacher, you know, and I, and I give you a level. But what that does for me is I get the information back again. And actually, when people opt into that, they write me far more than they would have ever said to me in person. So I still feel like I'm like, a lady wrote me a 22 page document the other, and just in case anybody's panicking that you're supposed to do that, other people have just filmed me a little clip of themselves talking to their phone in bed, like a 30 second clip going, I think this about this video that I do, that's fine. But I've got, you know, I've got so much information back from people. So. I, th I think I've found a way of making the online version work for me, but I am very much looking forward to getting back to the in-person stuff as well. It's, it's the, listening to you talk about that last bit, Joanna, it's, it's reminding me, it's definitely been the year of adapting, hasn't it? And, and kind of turning things on their head and looking at things from a completely different angle and how can we do it this way instead of that way? That's been yeah. one of the themes, hasn't it, of this strange period of time a new normal rather than trying to make out that this is the same yeah absolutely joanna thank you so much That's i feel right. like we've covered loads in this podcast um and i think it's going to be so interesting for people to listen to so we really appreciate you joining us it's That's right. Great. thanks for having me it's been lovely